A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. So trauten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Lusak. Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites for another episode in Jewish History. This is Yehuda Geberer. Before we start today... I want to just read to you and comment on a few uh, responses that we got. I get so many um, comments and additions from listeners, and the quality of the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites is phenomenal. Um, so they always have a lot to add. And I feel like if I don't share them from time to time, so I'm denying you all what um, some of these wonderful things are. So I figured I'll share just a few of them, choice ones, some goodies, uh, some are corrections, some are um, additions to recent episodes. So here goes one. For sure, the one that uh, um, uh, generated the most response by far was the, the two episodes uh, that, that Jewish History Soundbites did on Shlomo Karlbach. And um, I guess because it's recent history and it's a popular topic, so here's one that came just a couple of days ago. It's really good. Um, and I quote, I'm reading, The Karlbach podcasts are incredible. I grew up just a few blocks from his shul on the Upper West Side, and I did not know that it was his father's shul. Uh, I actually remember him, uh, blah, 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 blah. I remember going to the Karlbach shul on Friday night for the Sudas Bar Mitzvah of, of one of the people who he was Makariv. I got a big hug from Reb Shlomo. I distinctly remember his huge bushy beard. Um, although they don't generally have minyanim during the week, but they have one of the latest Myrivs in the neighborhood. Occasionally when the shul is in use, they have the minyan upstairs where Reb Shlomo had his apartment. Before they redid the upstairs and organized everything, there were bookcases with hundreds of random sfarim. Once I found a Mishnas Rib Aaron inscribed with something to the effect of Lichvair Yedidi Harav Shlomo, Mimais Yemei Neureinu, Eitzel Hagain Hagadol, Meireinu Harav Rib Aaron Zatzal, Vichulu, Biedidus Aaron. That's what it said in the Sefer. I never found the Sefer again, and that and never figure out who are, who the Aaron was that gave him the Sefer. Any suggestions who it may have been? 
Years ago, I heard from someone who heard from a person that was there once Kalbach was in St. Louis for a concert and came by the yeshiva or Kailel. Rebellious Svei had sent Talmidim to start a yeshiva there in St. Louis. And, he, and Kalbach went to this yeshiva before the concert. They started to make fun of him and told him to go play guitar and sing some songs. He asked them what they were learning. They told him, Takfakayin. He immediately rattled off seven different mahalchim from Reb Aaron on the sugya. They were floored and stopped their jokes. That's fantastic. I don't need to comment on that at all. That was a great uh, addition to the whole Karl Bach story. Um, this from the other end. This is from a person's memory. This previous one from a person's memories. From the other end, this I found a little bit, I don't know. Here, I'll read it to you and let, let the listeners judge. For the future episodes, try to track down the story I heard once that in the 1970s he was invited to be a guest Magid Shir in Itchri for Summersman and gave Iyun Shiurim on Yerushalmi's run. He's obviously talking about Shlomo Kalbach. There's no way for me to verify the story. It sounds a bit strange, but that's, uh, that's another story. That's another um, uh, someone wrote in. Interestingly enough, someone wrote in. Um, even though usually it's about the recent podcast, someone wrote in, someone's been listening to the old ones, the oldies and goodies, and he wrote an important correction. So I just want to go on record on telling him that he's absolutely 100% correct. So here I quote from the next letter. Letters obviously are emails or WhatsApps. <laughs> I don't get any letters. Um, I would like to point out with respect, I was listening to your podcast this morning on the Frank family and the Slabotka Russia Yeshiva. You pointed out that Reb Shraga Feivel Frank's son was Tzvi Pesach Frank, and when he died young, you said that he left in his will that he only had daughters and that they should marry Talmide Chachama. I believe from my limited knowledge that Reb Tzvi Pesach was not his son and that he did, did not, and that he didn't, uh, and that he did only have daughters like you said. Keep up the great work. So the truth is, is that he's sort of right. Um, the Rebzi Pesach that I was referring to, I misspoke. It was actually his nephew um, that I was referring to, the Rav of Yerushalayim. As it happens, Reb Shagafayvel Frank had um, sons also. The ones who were famous were his daughters, but he happened to have a couple of sons, and one of them was also named Tzvi Pesach. So they weren't famous, but he did have sons. But... I did misspeak, and the Ritzi Pesach that I was referring to in that episode was definitely his nephew and not his son. Um, recently had a uh, World War II, uh, the beginning of World War II, just the other day, I put out an a, uh, episode on the beginning of World War II, so we'll end off with that since it was recently. Um, someone wrote in also a correction, so here I quote, one more note on your last World War II podcast, which I very much enjoyed. I think you misspoke and said the Japanese invaded Manchuria in 1937. They actually invaded Manchuria in 1931 and set up their puppet state of Manchukuo. They invaded the rest of China in 1937. So I'll stop here before I continue. He is correct. Technically, they invaded Manchuria in 1931. And there are those who consider the beginning of World War II all the way from 1931 if we count the Far East. Uh, 1937, they do invade the rest of China, and they conquer much of it, actually. That's when they took over Shanghai and the rest of the areas 
along the coast, and they got pretty much pretty far into the interior as well. So he's 100%, right? As then he continues, I very much agree with your point to read the Nazi-Soviet pact and how it is under-publicized, mostly because of how the Soviet government was embarrassed of it after the war, and thus they and their fellow travelers did so much to deny and suppress it after the war in their propaganda. End of letter. And of course, he is correct with that as well, which I believe I mentioned in the last episode. Um, Soviet propaganda till today, and as we say, as George Orwell says, they flushed it down the memory hole. Um, I think we'll end with that. We'll continue with many more letters and comments from uh, listeners at future uh, podcast episode opportunities because there's so many good ones out there and and, uh, and I want to share them. Also to show that Jewish History Soundbites is not just about um, me talking to an audience um, all over the world, but we're actually one big community together of lovers of Jewish history, of very knowledgeable people of Jewish history, and we all have what to add and what to share, and we're, uh, we're all in this together. So that's also important to keep in mind and remember. Um, for tonight, um, tonight being the yard site, tonight, today, uh, being the yard site of Rav Cook, so it reminded me that, that I promised a part two on Rav Cook way back, um, his life story and his times, and a unique personality. And therefore, it's the opportune time to um, keep my word and go back to the amazing story of Rav Cook. So we left off where he was in World War I in England, and he comes back to Eretz Yisrael following World War I, and it becomes the rabbi of Yerushalayim, and he remains there for the rest of his life. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, it's actually the most famous of his years. The last 15 years of his life in Yerushalayim is his most famous 15 years. And um, when people remember of Cook, he lived for 70 years. And almost all the memories that people have of him are really from the last uh, bunch of years. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. He comes back from England and uh, ostensibly to Yaffa, where he's the rabbi. But what seems to be a consensus of most of the rabbis, Rav Rabbani Yerushalayim, that's what it's brought in the records, most of the Rabbanim of Yerushalayim, they appoint him to become the rabbi of Yerushalayim, and eventually he's recognized by the British Mandate government as the chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael, the first chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael. Uh, I remember um, one of the old and very special people in Yerushalayim that I was privileged, that I am privileged to be close with, especially when I was single many years, many years ago, is um, Reb Moshe El Yashiv, the son of the late uh, Reb El Yashiv. His wife is a cousin of mine, so I used to be very often Shabbos with him and other occasions. And at one point, I discussed Rav Cook with him, being that his family had been very close, and his father, his father's Masada Kedushin and, and Shadchan. Um, and I asked him, you know, where does that place his family and and how do we understand that? In, in, in uh, you know, when, when there's this, when in the textbooks it says that there was all this opposition to Rav Cook and his way. So what does that mean uh, as far as the Eliyasha family relationship with Rav Cook? And he turns to me like a bit surprised, and he says, you know, you have to understand that that most people supported him, and he was recognized as the rabbi, and he was you know, very popular and very much accepted. It was a very small minority who were opposed to him. And this is going back about 15, 16 years, and I was obviously not as knowledgeable uh, 
then as I am today. Not that today I'm that knowledgeable either, but um, but uh, he put things into context, um, and that's 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 something that that is important to remember. His support base was very broad, very wide. Just keep in mind that most of the rabbis in Yerushalayim were of Lithuanian origin, and many of them had studied in Valazhin. And Rav Cook was a Rav in Lita in Lithuania and had studied in Valazhin many many times with on the same you know, on the same bench with these people. Definitely had um, a support. There was a recognition of his stature as a leading rabbinical figure, as a leading Paisik, and uh, as a very important uh, Rav. He did face uh, an element of opposition as well. Um, very little from Lithuanian rabbis. In Europe, there was one or two Litvish Rabbanim who were opposed to him. Um, Rabbi Chanan Basraman, the Briskarov, Sikzev Salvechik, Velvale. Um, but even then, it, it, it was a little different. Rabbi Chanan himself had studied with, with Rav Kook when he was a Bachar in Tells, when he learned in Tells, and he, and he, had a, he lived in Boisk, where Rav Kook was the Rav. Even the Briskarov, there are letters of, uh, of his to Rav Kook in which he addresses him with a lot of respect. Um, he did face opposition from certain Hungarian rabbanim, Shaul Brach, others, and in Yerushalayim, famously, it was Reb Chaim Zanenfeld. But uh, in Yerushalayim, Reb Chaim Zanenfeld was almost l- waging a lone battle. Um, and even then, it was one of mutual respect. It wasn't a personal uh, fight. They, they Together, they had gone on the uh, travels through the um, kibbutzim and the yishuvim around the country before World War One, when he was still the rabbi in Yafo. They definitely had a certain uh, working relationship and mutual respect, but they was a lot of ideological opposition. Um, he he had interesting relationships with many different people. Again, his relationships that we just described were with different, different rabbis, his supporters, which were the majority, and his detractors, which were the minority. And um, in addition to that, he had his working relationship with the Zionist movement. And he had his relationship with the religious Zionists within the Zionist movement, the Mizrahi. And it's very often incorrectly recalled in the collective memory of the Jewish people that Rav Kook was part of the Mizrahi. And it may be surprising to hear that he was never officially affiliated with the Mizrahi. Uh, He created a lot of their ideology and his messianic Zionism, that it's the beginning of the Geula, and you have to work together with the secular Zionists because they're redeeming the land, and they're doing good things by settling the land and building it up. And it has to work that way. A lot of the ideas are incorporated into religious Zionism, and I'm definitely not an expert in Rav Cook's ideas. So I'm not so much focusing on his Torah and his thought and in his ideas, but it influenced the Mizrahi and the national religious camp. But he did not see himself and never was officially a member of the Mizrahi. In fact, he even tried creating a political party called Degel Yerushalayim, which would be different than the Mizrahi. And it, it was not successful, um, but he, he had certain criticism with uh, with the Mizrahi and uh, certain areas that he felt they were compromising. But he had a very good working relationship with them as well. In general, he was very good at working with people, even from different ideologies than him. Another aspect of Rav Cook, which is often overlooked, which I may have mentioned in the first part, but I want to go back to it now in the later part of his life, is his lifelong focus on chinuch on education for the youth and on building yeshivas. In fact, in 1924, there was a a um, a uh, 
a, a mission to send great rabbis to America to fundraise for the Lithuanian yeshiva world. And this, uh, this group was made up of primarily of three principal Litvisha Lithuanian rabbis, the, the Rosh Hashiva of Slabotka, Ramesha Mordechai Epstein, Rabbi Avram Dov Ber Kahana Shapiro, the Kovnerov, known by his sefer, the Dvar Havroham, who was not the head of a yeshiva, but he was well respected as one of the leading rabbinical figures of his age. And the third member of this group was Rav Kook, this delegation that went to America. And Rav Kook was the dominant one. He was the charismatic one. He was a fantastic speaker. And um, they went around America. It was a long visit they had to the United States. The common denominator between all three of them, besides for their great leadership, their great Torah scholarship, and, uh, and everything else that they shared in common, but another common denominator is that all three were very inclined to Zionism, to settling the land, and, uh, and to and, and non, non-major opposition to, to the Zionist movement. So that's something that all three had in common also. And in America, they were received by huge crowds everywhere they went, the, Rav Cook received the key of the city from the mayor of New York. Uh, I believe Jimmy Walker was the mayor of New York at the time. He even got to meet Calvin Coolidge, the president of the United States, in the White House when they were in Washington, D.C. And I actually have two uh, work colleagues who are pretty competent uh, researchers, and they've, they've actually mapped out the, pretty much the entire uh, itinerary of this rabbinical delegation to America, which they, they covered an enormous amount of ground. They went all over the United States, visiting and speaking in each area, all about mainly the yeshivas, uh, the Lithuanian yeshivas, and to help them to rebuild after World War I and to support the yeshiva movement. And he builds the yeshiva of Kuk, when he comes back to Yerushalayim, he builds the yeshiva in Yerushalayim. Eventually, it comes to be called Merkazarav. That's not what he called it, but it would, he wanted it to be a central yeshiva, a yeshiva that would add, incorporate into its learning all kinds of other subjects that had not been, Torah subjects that had not been normally part of the yeshiva curriculum, like Tanakh and um, Jewish thought, like, you know, the Rambam, Kuzari, um, other fascinating other subjects, areas of Torah that were not commonly studied. And he felt with the the growing return to Eretz Yisrael and the Messianic times and the bringing the Geula and we have to prepare ourselves and he, you know, believed in, in nationalism and recreating ourselves as a people in the Tyra way. So it gives a, a better perspective if we have a broader, a broader education in Tyra philosophy. He also, um, he had Rabbeim in the yeshiva, who was Talmidim, who were quite interesting personalities in their own right. Perhaps we should devote a future episode just to examining his Talmidim, a very diverse group. There was Rabbi David Koyen, the Rav Hanazir, not to be confused with other ra- contemporary rabbis of today who are named um, Rabbi David Koyen or Kohn. Uh, but in those days, Rabbi David Koyen, who was the, known as the Rav Hanazir, who, was, who became a Nazir in that time, and uh, an, an fascinating personality in his own right. There was Rabbi Yitzchak Arieli, who um, is the grandfather of a few famous people, Yael Vilner, who was a Supreme Court justice in Israel, and my Rebbe, Rabbi Asher Arieli, also, and a few other famous grandchildren. Rabbi Yitzhak Arieli was also a, a fascinating personality in the Arieli family in general. Um, Rav Cook had an interesting relationship with the British uh, mandate government. He had good relationships, but also a critical relationship at times. 
Rav Cook had an issue when he tried defending the murder of Chaim, murderer, excuse me, of Chaim Alazarov, Alazarov, who was one of the leading uh, members of the uh, Jewish agency of the Haganah at the time, and it was assassinated while walking with his wife on a Tel Aviv beach in 1933, which is also an interesting story. And Avram Stavsky was was accused of the murder from the revisionist Zionist camp. This is internal Zionist politics. It was a political assassination. Abba Achimer, one of the leading intellectuals of the revisionist Zionists, um, was arrested in relation to the murder by the British. And, and Rav Cook went all out to defend Stavsky and said there's no evidence. Um, it's a frame-up. And it cost him a lot of his relationships with the secular Zionists, interestingly enough. Um, Chaim Nachman Bialik, one of the leading intellectuals, the Hebrew poet, spoke out publicly against Rav Cook at this time um, that he's defending a murderer, and because of of his, uh, you know, his he couldn't believe that a Jew would murder another Jew. And interestingly enough, just like most of the Rabbanim in Yerushalayim learned with Rav Cook in Valazhin, so did Chaim Nachman Bialik. So this is one big Valazhin or family, everyone involved here which is also interesting. And there's, if there's one thing that I want to end off with, um, he spoke at, at certain prominent events in the secular Zionist world. He famously spoke at the groundbreaking ceremony of Hebrew University. And he also spoke at the opening ceremony of the Betzal Institute of Art, which is today part of Hebrew University, and today also has a Haredi division, so we've come kind of full circle from there. And at that, at that time, it was considered controversial that as he spoke this Betzal uh, School of Art, which was a totally secular institution, culture, art, and this doesn't belong in the holy city of Yerushalayim. People were very against it. People spoke out about it and tried to get it stopped from being opened. And they were very, very upset that Rav Cook agreed to speak there. And Rav Cook said something there. He said a mushal that became very famous. And I want to end off with it because this is a very penetrating insight into who he was as a person and how he lived his life and what was the philosophy that he espoused to his people, to the Jewish people, in his writings, in his, in his Torah, and to his students, and to whoever would listen to him. This really kind of sums it up in a way, even though it's impossible to sum up everything about him. His range and his depth were, were phenomenal, literally from all over. Um, Kabbalah and Hasidus and Maral and everything in, in uh, really all encompassing. But he spoke at this in opening of the Betzal uh, Institute of Art. Um, he said that there was once, he said a mashal, there was once a little girl who fell into a coma. Some accident happened that she falls into a coma and her parents are sad. They, you know, she's unresponsive. And here they're waiting and waiting, and for years she's in a coma. And one day she opens her eyes, she wakes up, she sees her parents there, she sees the doctors, and her parents are looking at her with love, with a smile. They cared for her all these years, they stood by her side, they held her hand, they got her the best medical care. And she opens her mouth, and the first thing she says is, I want my dolly. So on one hand, her parents are devastated. This is what she wants. She doesn't want her loving parents, the ones who gave everything to her. Instead, she wants her dolly. It's, it's devastating. But on the other hand, and this is the real emotion of the parents, is that they're excited. 
their child opened her eyes and asked for something. That means she's waking up. And she said, and Rav Kook said, that's, that's the Betzal Institute of Art, and that's really, to a certain extent, how he looked at the whole secular Zionist enterprise and nationalism in general that was on the rise and that was creating this whole, this whole situation here in, in, in the Palestine of his time in Eretz Yisrael, is that he said that the Jewish people are in Gullus, they're in a coma, and when they wake up, Hashem took care of them. The, our Father in Heaven took care of us all these years. And instead of calling out to Hashem, we're asking for a dolly, we're asking for art. We've discovered nationalism, and we're waking up to secular nationalism, and we're asking for art. So on one hand, it's devastating. And uh, we're not looking for Hashem. We're not uh, returning to God, and returning to His, His land with keeping the Torah and Mitzvahs, for the most part. He's talking about <laughs> the general population. And he said, on the other hand, we're waking up. There's this nationalism is an awakening, and it's a rise, and hopefully it'll take us back all the way to our Father in Heaven. This was Jewish History Soundbites with Yehuda Geber. Um, you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course trips and tours to anywhere and all over with Jewish History. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.